welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. It's time for another group show with our usual cast of characters. Joining us from Sydney is senior tech editor, Dave Rome. Dave, just getting getting caught up on whether or not you're managing to keep your garage dry, and it sounds like it's a losing battle, unfortunately. Yeah, a little bit. That's all right. Um, I'll, I'll find another hobby other than tools once they're all rusted. <laughs> well, corrosion-proof tool. Clearly, you have to upgrade all your tools to titanium. Yes, yeah. That's the nice. That is the nice thing of spending so much on tools is they they're generally pretty rust resistant. So there's a positive. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, sitting next to me here at the very dry Boulder Gruppetto is pro mechanic Zach Edwards. Zach, what is your favorite breakfast sandwich at Decent Bagel? Oh, I don't know. Probably some sort of egg and sausage and cheese or something. I was I, I was up there and had the the egg and sausage and bacon and cheese and hash brown. I That's think. a lot. It was Ooh. a lot. Sounds delicious, though. It was delicious. It was very, very good. I highly recommend it. That is a super American breakfast sandwich. <laughs> it was a very American <laughs> breakfast sandwich. And calling in from Durango, Colorado, is Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief Kaylee Fretz, who is likely never, ever going to upgrade from satellite internet. Wink, wink. <laughs> Am I correct? Nope. Never. Uh, it is. It behooves me to have internet that doesn't work when it's snowing outside. And so I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> Maybe I should switch back. I should switch back. I should totally switch back. I'm on Starlink now. Me and Elon. We're just, you know, we're like that. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, regular listeners may be wondering why this show is coming to you on a Wednesday this week instead of our usual Monday. No, we have not been slacking this week, although Kelly and I did ski midweek. Uh, I, I will admit, uh, but we are shuffling up the schedule of Cycling Tips podcast a little bit, and Nerd Alert will now be posting uh, on each Wednesday for this foreseeable future, or at least until we get tired of it and decide to mix things up again. So just FYI, you didn't miss anything on Monday. It's now going to come to you on Wednesdays. Uh, anyway, we have a super interesting show for you, as always, today. Uh, we've got all sorts of tech news, like Le Mans return to high-end road bikes, uh, a wireless e-bike charging concept. We'll We'll debate the merits of Wahoo's new kicker roller smart roller thing. And yeah, and then we'll kind of just wrap up this week's group show with a round of Ask a Mechanic, where we take all the burning tech and maintenance questions from our Velo Club members and hopefully provide some useful answers. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. In the news front, big news. Yes, as I mentioned, Le Monde is back in the road bike business. Well, they seem to be anyway. Uh, quietly added to the company website a few days ago was a new aero road bike called the 8 uh, in homage to Greg LeMond's eight-second victory overall in the 1989 Tour de France. Uh, the bike includes all the features you'd pretty much expect these days. It's carbon fiber. It uses camtail, truncated airfoil tube shaping. It's got dropped seat stays, of course. It's a one-piece carbon fiber bar and stem combo full in, with fully hidden cabling, yada, yada, yada. There's also some more unusual features, like the fact there's no metal in the frame at all, including the threads, um, or the bottom, or the bottle mounts, or you know the carbon fiber replaceable rear derailleur hanger. It's all carbon fiber. Um, the fork and the fork and frame also have structural expanding foam inside. The fork has an X-shaped brace in the steer tube, along with integrated threads, so you don't have to run a compression plug. And the stem is supposedly self-aligning. Geometry-wise, the bike looks pretty normal, aside from size-specific chainstay lengths, which is quite interesting. Uh, they vary from 405 millimeters on the 47-centimeter size up to 430 on the 62-centimeter one. It's also Shimano Di2 compatible only, and the price is about what you'd expect, about 12,500 US for a complete bike with Le Monde-branded carbon wheels, or 8,500 US for a frame sit and cockpit, uh, with the first delivery scheduled for July. Uh, sorry, we have no Aussie pricing yet. The Aussie pricing is a lot. It's a big number. Yes. We can imagine. It certainly, certainly is a big number, no, unquestionably. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people are very excited about this bike and the fact that Le Monde is back in the road bike business. Um, I certainly am just having, having some history with, the, with those bikes back in the day when they, were, uh, when they were owned by Trek. But I have so many questions, like so, so many questions. And unfortunately, they have not gone answered yet because the email that I sent to Le Monde Bikes several days ago has not come back to me. They haven't come back to me mm. with a reply yet. So lots Likewise of for my email. Hmm. Hmm. Weird. Strange. So anyway, <laughs> Kaylee, I believe you have a big question for this in particular. Yes, uh, question in the back. Question in the back. Uh, I am no material scientist. Uh, however, 
However, I do believe, James, that you've told me before that some materials are better for some things and worse for others. And I feel that perhaps threads fall into the latter category when it comes to carbon fiber. Am I wrong? Well, here's the thing. I mean, usually because carbon is not typically very, uh, very tolerant of uh, sort of like the, those sorts of stresses that you would subject threads to, uh, they tend to break instead of bend or stretch, that sort of thing. Um, however, Lamond hasn't really given us any information as far as how these threads are formed. So I'm assuming that they are not cut into the carbon after it's molded because that would be a terrible idea. Um, so they, they must be molded in place, but I have no idea how that's being done. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, we James, uh, you and I chatted with Scott Roy not that long ago um, about their gravel bike, uh, their new cyclocross race bike. Scott Roy from Cervelo. Yeah, correct. Uh, and he he basically mentioned that they themselves, as a company, were investigating full carbon fiber threads for T forty seven, and that they had been experimenting by just cutting threads into existing press fit carbon shells. Uh, but that they had something else that they were playing with that was basically a molded thread. So it seems that there's something happening here in the industry that's not just unique to Le Monde and that they're, I guess, Le Monde's just the first to bring it into production. It also feels like because all the photos of this new bike are not actually of the bike, they're just renderings. They're very yeah. good renderings. Very good <laughs> renderings. But yep. it would not surprise me come production that the threads are not carbon fiber. Well, like, my- if you're going to post information about a new bike and you do not have the actual image of even a sample bike, like that doesn't leave me very optimistic about this. Yeah, I mean, especially since the de- the first deliveries are stated to be around July, which is, what, four months away, I think? Yeah. Um, and you would have to think, you you have to hope, at least anyway, that all of the features that are on this bike have at least been prototyped and tested somehow and it this is not that this isn't just some you know some computer exercise right now that someone's hoping is going to happen um that just doesn't seem likely especially since they're taking money right now like they're they're they are taking deposits on the bikes uh they're pretty big deposits too and they they state pretty openly that the first deliveries will go to customers who pay up front in full not just put a deposit down um so, yeah, but as of right now, we don't have any information as far as like the frame weight, what the stiffness is like, you know, that foam core is supposedly helps with ride quality, but we don't really have any additional information with that. There's no aero data. As Zach mentioned, there's no actual pictures of the, or no, no pictures of the actual product. Um, not that long ago, I think it was 2016, maybe Lamond Composites, uh, that company kind of broke ground where I guess they, they went public with a what they were saying was a, a lower cost way of producing carbon fiber. And you would think that this would be somewhat related to, the, to that, but there was no mention of that. Um, and then if it was involved, why is this still so expensive? Because it is certainly no cheaper than anything else out there. Um, and then like, you know, they say that, you know, the cabling up front is fully internal, but there is also an option for external cable routing. It says, um, don't know what that looks like. Uh, you can run a two piece bar and stem instead of a one piece. Don't know what that looks like either. Don't know if you can run your own bar. Um, I have lots of questions. I mean, I hope it happens though. Like it's, to me, it seems too good to be true. But back in the day, I had a Le Monde and it rode really well. And I hope this happens. But they were great. It just by July seems really optimistic when there's not any real information. So yeah, I mean, they, they, the Le Monde bikes always rode really well. They always put a, like a pretty big priority on like durability and safety. And Le Monde says right on the website that they, uh, well, I don't remember the exact quote now, but it's some reference to how they believe they've they've made the safest bikes in the world, um, partially as a result of this foam core stuff, but also because of this this bracing that's inside the steer tube, um, presumably to keep it from bending or breaking and that sort of thing. Uh, and you know, threads are integrated into how the fork is molded, so even if you cut the top, there are always just threads sitting there ready for you to yeah. thread in your preload bolt, um, which a few brands are doing, BMC and Factor. BMC and Factor, don't they still co-mold in uh, metal metal threads? It is a metal thread, yeah, but it's it's yeah, I guess it's bonded permanently as part of the the fork right. with a right. with a with like a foam. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Factor has metal threads in it, but the BMC, it's like you take a more coarser thread, aluminum piece that threads into the structural foam, and then that's the preload bolt thread. Right. It's almost like a... So this is if you took the factor and BMC and smashed them together. Yes. That's yes. what you'd have. Yep. 
So, th- I mean, Zach, like you said, there are so many things on this bike that sound really, really cool. And I, I, if all of this stuff actually comes to light, Le Mans really could have something here. But I wish that there was something a little bit more encouraging on the website that gave me more confidence that this was going to be a real thing. What is discouraging to me is um, the fact that they're saying, if you give us all your money up front while we only have renderings and not talking to media you'll be first to get this product. I, I, that I'm worried by that. That's, that's, that to me tells me that they're potentially just, you know, need cash flow to get this thing into production. Maybe it's kind of like the Kickstarter model is, is what I'm feeling from that, where it's like, you're, you know, they've got these upfront costs and they're trying to cover them before they bring the bike out. I could be misreading that, but it, it does seem a bit, uh, a bit worrying to me. It does feel that way. And I think too, like in the last, I don't know, 10 years, I feel like Le Mans has tried to make a road bike comeback a couple times and they like did this big launch. And I remember it was an interbike a few years ago or something, like maybe they partnered with time or something, but yeah, like yep. all of this drama or not drama, but hype around a new Le Mans coming back and then it led to nothing. So that doesn't necessarily give me optimism. Yeah. The difference is like the company has been around now in its own you know, standing on its own feet with the uh, with its e-bikes for what a year or two, and they those bikes are out there, if I'm not mistaken. Like people are riding these things and can buy them. So, hey, Kaylee, where's my review? Oh, okay, not just people riding. <laughs> Kaylee is riding one by the sounds of it. Um, I had one. I had one briefly last year and shot it uh, with a camera. You're so no, American. So no, American. I, yeah. I, oh, okay. <laughs> with it was I was just a 22. It only made a small hole. I don't know what you guys are so worried about. <laughs> right. Just a little bit of a lithium ion test. <laughs> no, I did. I got photos of it and, and it was a, it was a, it was a good bike. I, yeah, it was at a time in my professional life that, uh, I have a whole lot of time for writing and now it's a bit, bit far in the rear view mirror at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had, I think you had a greater degree of optimism as to how much time you're going to have to write. that. Yeah. Thing and I have become a realist in the last year. <laughs> that is, so ba- ba- that could happen. <laughs> As have I, which basically means I ask Kaylee for nothing. Exactly. <laughs> can we, given that, can we get a five-word review now? Um, it was. I mean, it, the interesting thing to me is it was like that's way more than five words. <laughs> but I haven't actually said anything of substance yet. <laughs> uh, it was very similar to the like commuter bikes that I build, right? Like flat bar kind of road bike geometry. Cause like my commuter bike is a, is a cross bike with a flat bar on it. Kind of roadie geometry. So a bit twitchy and fun and it was relatively light. Uh, the, as a result, like the battery wasn't massive. So the, the range was not super, super impressive, but certainly like if, if you were just cruising around the city, it didn't need to carry much. It's super fun, right? It, it was, you know, the, the hub drive motor, yeah, it was, it was it was a good little bike. It has no cargo capacity, so that was an issue. Um, you could well, rack none, none built you in could, anyway. None built in. Yeah, you could rack and fender it if you wanted to, um, and it's really expensive and looks really cool. And so I imagine if you lived in literally any city on the planet, you couldn't lock that thing anywhere. You have to have the ability to bring it inside, and that would make it somewhat difficult to to use. Um, but it was it was well done. It was it was quite like you know integrated lights and it was thoughtfully done and well executed for what it was. It's not the type of e bike that I would go out and buy probably, but it was well done. You just right, blew well, the word count by a long. I was gonna, I was going to say that was like that was definitely more like a Dave Rome word. So count. we're just gonna we're just gonna transcribe that and that's the review right there. Okay, <laughs> done, cool, done. done. All right, well, lo- looking looking past the the questions about uh, this bike's actual feasibility or likelihood to make it out into the wild. What do we think about this variable chainstay length thing? By you know changing the chainstay length with with frame size because it is something that we have seen become more popular on the mountain bike front and there's a lot of lot of merit to that. Um, but we haven't really seen it on the road bike side. Uh, there's a few custom uh, frame builders in the in the road world that I guess have historically done this. Um, Tom Kellogg is is certainly one such example, and and I guess that theory is seen on the the Ritter bikes that he recently designed. Um, and yeah, it's it's mainly about weight distribution. Um, you know, longer longer front sensor needs needs to be balanced with a, a longer rear sensor in in the simplest terms. Um, but yeah, you speak to different 
builders and they have different approaches to this. Tom Kellogg's is kind of like a, a bell curve of chain stay lengths where the longest length is actually found kind of in like the, the 56 to 58 centimeter size. And then they start to get shorter again um, because of the seat tube angle. But, uh, but yeah, it's certainly, as you said, James, it's like, it's, it's a thing in the mountain bike world and, and increasingly so because front centers are getting so long that one chain stay length isn't necessarily always the right answer. That and the fact that with taller riders in particular, those seat tube angles are typically slacker than what you see on smaller uh, on smaller frames. And just by virtue of the saddles being so much higher, taller riders tend to just be kind of sitting more on top of the back wheel than someone of, say, my height, for example, um, which certainly seems like it would lead to a very different feel overall. Um, someone actually commented um, on either on the article or on the Slack channel, I can't remember now, um, but mentioned something about how on their current road bike with the super short, with the super short chain stays that they have, they actually sometimes have issues with uh, the front wheel lifting on super, super steep road climbs, um, which uh, you should see this. You should see the look on Zach's face right now, but it, it's something that certainly is an issue on mountain bikes. But I mean, I guess unless you are climbing something very, very unusually steep on a road bike, I guess it's also possible to say if you have like a very upright position too, um, you know, I, it's not inconceivable. Zach, you're looking, you're looking very skeptical right now. It seem, I just, I'm trying to imagine somebody accidentally wheeling up a road climb. <laughs> and that seems more like weight distribution issue than chainstay length. But, the, but chainstay length is weight distribution, right? That, like it, it, it still feels like user error, though. Like, yeah. lean forward. <laughs> and then you want to maybe, do that. Maybe, but again, you know, but everyone's you on short nose saddles. You can't scooch forward yeah, anymore. Yeah. But but you you know, but to be fair, I mean you and Zach, Kaylee, you and Zach are are taller than Dave and I, but you're not that much taller. And I'm assuming I don't know how tall this commenter was, but let's say you're like six four, six six or something. Oh, it's a shame we don't have Leonard on the on the show right now. Um, but let's say you're six four, six six, six eight, whatever. Let's just say you're particularly tall and you are running basically the same chain state length as me who is like, what, 1.72 meters, 5.8, that sort of thing. Um, so relatively speaking, a person of that height would have a lot more of their weight further back on the bike than I would, wouldn't they? Yeah, and I'm sure it would change the feel of the bike, but if you're doing wheelies up the hill, I still think that's your fault. Or you're just rad. <laughs> or you're rad. Or yeah. you're exceptionally rad. Or you're just rad. like you're you have a really weird bike fit. Like you could have a road bike with like a 50 mil stem and your saddle slammed all the way back with all your weight backwards. Then maybe sure you might accidentally wheelie, but this still seems like user error, not a chain stay length issue. Well, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I'm, I'm pretty tall and sometimes ride bikes that are too small for me that have really short chain stays. I have never once accidentally wheelied going up a road. <laughs> on a mountain bike. Yes. Yeah, so you're like going up steep, loose things and you kind of lose traction and, but on the road, I just that I think we're getting well, hung up. Way, we're, the, the, we're getting hung up on the accidental wheelie thing, which is like yes, neither yes. here nor there. The, the the reality here is that I think a lot of times bikes are not particularly well designed for varying varying size people, right? Like small bikes, really small bikes, don't ride anything like the bikes that I ride. Like I ride a fifty six, right? These the literally middle of the road. Basically, what most 5456 is what most bikes are sort of start with, right? And then they sort of expand upward and they shrink downward. And as a result, like I end up with the bike that the engineers are probably intending to to build. And whoever's on the 48 is almost certainly not. And for a lot of different reasons, like 700C wheels don't really fit that well in a bike that size. And you come up against all these other limitations. If you go to a 65 centimeter frame, then yeah, maybe you wheelie really easily. I don't know. I've never, I've never, I've never done that. But that that is that fundamentally that's the issue that is sort of like it is worth solving, right? Like that we can joke about. Okay, you should just bend your elbows and not wheelie. But everyone's bike, regardless of how tall or short you are, should ride somewhat similar. I think in an ideal world. Right? Ideally, yeah, for sure. And it doesn't happen that way. So anyway, well, hopefully we're, we're getting off track. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, but ho hopefully this Lamond actually does happen. So that we can kind of check out all this stuff, because again, as we said, there are a lot of interesting things, features on and ideas on this thing that I would love to check out. So fingers crossed, this bike actually becomes an actual bicycle and not just 
uh, a computer rendering, or maybe it'll be sold as an NFT. There, there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interest in it for sure. I mean, we put this story up a couple days late because we were trying to find official information, right? So like other other outlets had this story end of last week. Uh, we won't call them the less scrupulous outlets, but there are some other outlets that had this up end of last week. We tried to find more, more information, failed, and so. James, you put something up uh, overnight last or early this morning, and it has been the number one story on our website, our dear website, all day. So there is a there is a huge amount of what? interest in this thing. I think you mean it's outpacing Cool Tool Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> cool Tool Tuesday is at the moment in second place, Dave. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, it is about it's doing about two thirds the traffic right at right at this very you know we have live analytics in the site right mm. right at this very mm. moment it's doing about two thirds the traffic of me of me writing about cassette tools versus Greg Lemon releasing a new road bike I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> two thirds of the not way go, is pretty good not to go too far off the rails here Kaylee but basically essentially what you're saying is we we got we got sort of yelled at on social media for not being quick enough to parrot company marketing speak but um but also but usually what we get but usually get what we, yes but usually what we get yelled at is for supposedly parroting company marketing speak so yeah, in this just, case because we didn't do it quickly enough it was an interesting exchange uh but i won an argument on the internet so that's exciting whoa uh, what because the dude at the last tweet he sent was fair enough and i was like i think that's a victory and i think that's the first that victory happens. in the <laughs> history of the internet <laughs> oh man all right all right well Speaking of arguing, we're going to move on to our next topic here in tech news, uh, which I, I would have to imagine there are going to be some strong opinions on this one because uh, Wahoo introduced a new smart trainer called the Kicker Roller, or Kicker Roller, but there are no E's because uh, Wahoo has sent version to Vals. Um, as the name suggests, it's sort of like a set of rollers, except it kind of isn't. Uh, it's actually more like the more like the Feedback Sports Omnium. Uh, you've got like a set of just a pair of narrow rollers in the back, uh, just for the back wheel. And then the front wheel, which you do not take off your bike, uh, is secured in this sort of like A-frame clamp thingy. Um, you have variable electronic resistance built into the rollers. You get a flywheel, all that. Um, however, there is no direct power meter built into those rollers like in most smart trainers. Instead, the kicker roller relies on a separate direct measurement power meter that you ideally must have on your bike. Um, of course, that power meter would be Wahoo is PowerLink Zero pedal meter power meters, naturally. Um, doesn't have to be, really. Uh, but according to Wahoo, you still get the benefits of having some free movement. Uh, it's a lot easier to get the bike on and off than other trainers. Uh, we actually witnessed this with, I think it was Ineos at one of the one of the races not too long ago. They were tossing bikes on and there very quickly. Um, and you can still simulate uh, resistance up to 1,500 watts and gradients up to 10%. Still seems a little off to me, though, like I'm, we had lots of questions on this article that Ronan wrote, kind of basically just asking, what is this for? And that's a very interesting question because it, this thing is not terribly inexpensive. Um, I mean, it's, it's cheaper than like a, a kicker direct mount trainer sort of thing. It's 800 US, uh, about 1200 Australian. What do we have here? 800, uh, sorry, 700 pounds or 800 euros. But there's no power meter, so you have to have that on your bike. Um, and you don't get the balance benefits of rollers. Um, I, I haven't ridden my sample yet. Ben Delaney over at Bella News did, and he, he said that there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a lag in communication based on, uh, like sort of what, what the system is reading from your parameter and what's communicated to the rollers. It's also pretty big and heavy. Uh, it's like 23 kilos or 50, 50 pounds. And it's, it kind of just takes up a lot of room. 50 pounds for a set of rollers? The box is quite heavy. The whole point of rollers is that they're like really simple and you just take them out and they're portable and you like warm up before a race or whatever. Yeah, but 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 Kaylee, that's a roller with an E. This is a roller. Ah, no a e, roller. It's completely a completely different thing. I yeah. Um that's that's the thing that stands out to me most is that feedback sports product that this kind of is similar to in some ways was arguably designed for racers to take to the pits and warm up on like it wasn't you know, even arguably it really was like it's it really was super I mean, small yeah i mean people do use it for training but realistically it was made to be portable and and compact that you could travel with it and 
take it as a warm-up device. Um, and this kind of looks like that, but at 50 pounds is not like that. I mean, yeah, Wahoo have been using this as a branding opportunity. I mean, they sponsored, what, the, the Road World Championships, was it, where they had basically everyone warming up regardless of bike. They For had all people. the time trials. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's that side of things where even if they only have these at big races at, you know, World Championships and Olympic events or whatever it is, there's a branding opportunity for them to have this product. But I don't know. I'm struggling with it beyond that. It's really, it is really hard because again, Kaylee, as you were mentioning, you, you don't get, you don't get the benefit of actual rollers because you don't really have to balance on the thing. Cause your front wheel is basically clamped in place. Um, there are certainly people questioning whether or not this is good for the front wheel. If you're using this long-term because several people have commented about how people put their bikes on bike racks all the time that have the same kind of clamp mm. like that's a dumb argument yeah but there's, but there's not someone sitting on the bike at the same time moving it around from left Wailing to right, on right? It. a wheel is built to have a lot of stress like you go around corners with way more force than it clamped in one of these clamps i i, I just i don't like the sort of the point of rollers is that it is you're on rollers it's just easy you hop on and you you're ride free. And, you and fr- they, they, there is nothing touching your bicycle except for you, right? And and you are just riding, and it feels like you're riding outside, and that's why people love them. And I don't necessarily understand how going halfway in between a traditional trainer and rollers, which is kind of what this feels like to me, provides the benefit of either. Really, like, 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 direct drive trainers are really, really, really good these days. I mean, the, the let's give Wahoo credit. The Wahoo Kicker is a phenomenal direct drive trainer for getting on and like doing a workout and you know sprinting and doing like whatever you got to do in a trainer to get yourself fit. Right? Rollers like are the kind worst of, complete, of both worlds. Yeah, that's kind of rollers are kind of a completely separate thing where you have to pay attention. And if you stop paying attention, if you try to do like super hard intervals on rollers, good luck. You're going to fall off. <laughs> There's a 100% chance of that happening. But but you sort of deal with that because it's such a realistic riding experience. So you lose the realistic riding experience and you lose the ability to like close your eyes and pedal as hard as you can, which is the whole point of riding on a trainer inside. And it's not small to travel with. And it's not small. I just, I don't, Maybe I'm just missing something, but I don't, I don't personally get this one. I haven't I haven't used this roller without a vowel. Um, roller. What's the is is the rear wheel free to sway at all? Like a little bit. You feel well, just it, a few inches. It, it can move laterally a little bit, but okay. the bike cannot tilt left to right. It's similar sure. to the feedback. Okay. Like yes. That, very, like very a short, similar. small roller. Okay. So to me, to me, it seems like this is a very niche application because. Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of things here. I guess to clarify, the reason why it does not, the reason why it requires a separate power meter on your bike is because there are so many vari- variability, or there's so much variability in terms of how that rear wheel sits on those rollers, whether you're seated or standing, what tire, tire you're using, all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of vari- variability that can go along with trying to measure the power at the roller. So that's why you have to have the power meter on your bike. So I think that is a perfectly valid, if sort of weird reason to have to do that. Um, However, to me, like the, the 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 niche application seems to be just how quick and easy it is to get bikes on and off this thing, um, which I think is great. If again, like you're sponsoring a neutral war, uh, warm up station, or you have like a, you know a team like Ineos, where you've got to get a bunch of bikes on and off of trainers and different types of bikes and that sort of thing, uh, or maybe if you are in a household with multiple cyclists and ideally, clearly, people who have multiple bikes with power meters on them um because then at that point say like you know you can get on the trainer and then you know your your significant other can get on the trainer and like it's there's not a whole lot of work involved with getting the thing on and off but outside of that i'm really kind of struggling to see what the market appeal for this would be i'm just having a hard time with it and and it's also kind of weird because wahoo i feel like is usually pretty good at getting that sort of thing right yeah, just a weird one to me. I mean, maybe we just need to ride it. Maybe maybe we should stop talking until we ride it. <laughs> but Mind blown. Maybe, maybe we're missing something that it, it just, re, if, I mean, like if it feels really good, then, you know, cool, great. Maybe if it, maybe if it kind of gives you part of the benefits of a direct drive trainer, but feels better because it moves a bit than a direct drive trainer, then maybe that is exactly what it, it is designed You said for. it's still $800, which seems mind blowing for 
a tiny little roller that doesn't have power. Well, you still have to have the resistance unit in it, though, which certainly adds more money versus a, a, a roller that, that doesn't have any resistance unit in it. But yes, it does seem like a fair bit of money. Yeah, I just don't understand. All right, well, maybe we're moving on. I think it's just us. I think we're just not smart enough to get it. I don't know. I don't, I mean, the collective brain power of this of this brain trust is not. What does, <laughs> what does Ronan think? Ronan is an expert indoor person that trains. What does he think? I don't know. We, should, we, could, we could ping him on Slack right now and find out. But uh, He may be asleep. Possibly. Uh, no, he's not asleep. Actually, actually, no, he's not asleep. It's not, not, that late in the, he, it's not that late in the UK. It's pretty late, but he, he works late all the time. He does. Yeah. He does. Cause Particularly right now. Because he he's not able to ride his bike. He can't ride bikes. <laughs> Poor guy. He, but as, uh, as we've said, he has been very productive lately, though. Oh, super productive. I'm breaking all of your super legs every time I see you. Yep. <laughs> all right, well, I am very on. scared to attend Sea Otter. <laughs> very scared. <laughs> James, why are you walking around with a crowbar? Huh? <laughs> um, all right, mo- moving on to something that I think most of us will hopefully agree makes more sense. Um, this is a little bit more on the utilitarian front. So Dr. Natalia Barber is, she's an assistant, pro, uh, she's an assistant professor of transport and energy at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. She recently sent me some information on really pretty cool te- uh, technology for e-bikes. So right now we have wireless chargers for phones and like toothbrushes and all sorts of other stuff, right? Um, well, this charging concept from a company called Tyler uh, does the same thing for e-bikes using a special charging pad embedded in the ground and a dedicated two-legged kickstand. It supposedly charges just as fast as hardwired chargers too. Um, it is primarily designed mainly for e-bike fleets at the moment because it does require that special kickstand. Um, but I honestly could totally see something like this being partnered with a company like, say, Bosch, um, where you could have a dedicated parking pad in your garage, like a kind of like a rollout thing, let's say, um, you, know, you wheel your bike onto this e-bike charging pad, and then you just sort of just like magically have a fully charged e-bike every time you need it. Um, I mean, this sounds good to me. Anyone have any? I mean, I can't really see much of a downside to it. It doesn't sound to be. It doesn't sound to be all that expensive either. What's wrong with a plug? Like I, I've got an iPhone that has this technology, and I still use the the white cable plug because because occasionally. You put your phone on the wrong part of the pad, and then you wake up, and your phone's dead in the morning. <laughs> Whereas a we're plug, gonna, we're gonna have to title doesn't... yet another episode "Old Grumpy Haters" today. We're yeah. going to have to. <laughs> um, That's a valid point, though. Like, what's wrong with a plug? Point. It is a valid I think point. for a fleet, it makes huge sense. Like we have yeah. here, in, here in Boulder, we have they're called B cycles. It's just like a row of bike stands, and you have these rental bikes that you essentially check out and you park back in them. And if they're e bikes, and you literally just park the bike in the thing and it automatically charged fantastic but yeah you roll this thing into your garage you have an outlet you have a plug just plug it in that seems way more simple way cheaper and less to go wrong I, yeah my my initial thought with this when you're talking about it, james is that they're using e-bikes as a proof or a test uh case for, for electric guess. cars because yeah is that e-bikes, you know, it's a smaller mat, it's it's a, a lower risk, it's, you know, more affordable products for adoption, but really the use case here is for cars. I mean, that could very well be. It very, it very much could very well be. Um, that all said, coming back to your question, Zach, about, or, and, and Dave, like, what's wrong with the plug? Um, so, yeah, as most people probably listening to this podcast know, I mean, I have been a pretty big fan of e-cargo bikes for a while. I've had one in the family for several years now. Um, yeah, plugs are not that big of a deal, but I also just given how my garage is laid out, I basically have to park that bike in the middle of the garage. Um, and then I don't know, I don't necessarily always want to just have a cord reaching from the wall of my garage over to the middle of my garage. And granted a charging pad would still have to be plugged into the wall somewhere. But at that point, if it's, if it's just a fixture in the middle of your floor, you can run the cable so that it's sort of just like, you know, barely close to flush mounted on the floor. So you're not tripping on it and stuff. You're not stepping on it. I mean, from my perspective, it seems kind of convenient because yes, there is the question of whether you, you know, how close you have to be to having the thing perfectly positioned every time. But that said, I don't always remember to charge the bike when I have to. And the idea that this thing could potentially just be always topped up. I mean, granted, I'm not really sure uh, off the top of my head how good that would be for the battery, but 
um, the fact that I would never really have to remember to charge it is kind of appealing to me. I mean, to like to make something wireless, I could be wrong. I'm not an electrician or whatever. To make something wireless uses more energy. And the whole point of e-bikes and electric cars is to be more energy efficient and better for the earth. So why are we making something that's already better use more energy than it needs to use? Where a plug, you just plug it in and it comes from the source. You're not also having to send a signal. Zach, you're asking questions the industry doesn't want you to talk about. But it's, I just don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, th- I think like why yeah. use more energy than we have to old grumpy haters. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I, what does this thing look like, James? Can you describe what this mat is? It like a rollout mat or is it like, no, more no, it's, like it's a, not a rollout mat. So the way, the way that these are currently set up in the, in the fleets, it, it's almost like a, it, it's almost like a, um, like a, it, well, as the name suggests, it's almost like a tile that is embedded in the ground. It's almost, it's, so you'd it's, have to get your garage floor redone. Well, the way that these things are set up, but you wouldn't necessarily always have to do it that way. I mean, they're, they're done this way for fleets because presumably, you know, they, they're, they're outside, to, they don't, yeah. they're outside. They don't want people to steal them. So on and so forth. Um, I don't see any reason why this couldn't be a standalone thing that you have like a big pad that you have on your floor. Um, I don't see why that couldn't be. Um, but yes, right now, the way they are set up in these, in these fleet setups, I mean, they're primarily set up as, uh, sort of like rentals for, for companies at the moment. They're not set up for like individual home use or anything. Um, so yeah, as of right now, it's, it's a tile that's embedded in the floor. Yeah. Which, like I said at the beginning of this for fleets, I think it makes a ton of sense and it's great. Or if you're going to park your car on it every night. Yeah. It's not too much of a stretch. Does it give you like foot cancer if you stand on it? Like what happens? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How does it interact with the aluminum shavings that come out of the contrails? <laughs> does it double as like a stand-on keyboard that lights up and plays music as you walk along it? Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe, okay. maybe that's that's cool. that. Dance Dance uh, Revolution. No, this, this, yes. this wasn't this wasn't quite as quite as uh, universally well well received among us as I thought it would be. No, but I. I I do think such like a permanent fixture such as this isn't too much of a stretch. I mean, there's a lot of people buying electric vehicles at the moment that are having fast chargers and that type of thing installed into their garage, which is, you know, a, a, a tiled charging plate is not that different to that. So uh, I think there is absolutely a, a use case for this and a customer for this that it's going to sell and it's going to become a thing. But I'm I'm just skeptical as to whether the e-bike market is perhaps the best place for it. I think you're right that it's just, they're just testing it for cars. Because if you could just pull your car into your garage and it's just charging, like that's, people will do that. <laughs> people will yeah, get sure. that installed Absolutely. on their garage floor. And, and yeah. in shopping centers and everything, right? Like it's, yeah. you, know, it, any, you know, any luxurious hotel that is car- encouraging people with electrical vehicles, you know, they currently have fast chargers in, in partnership with Tesla and such. And this would just be the natural progression from that. Whole Walmart parking lot. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, can you imagine if someone news. parked their e-bike right where like you're meant to park your Tesla just for that that wireless and, charging, and, and the whole thing oh, would just melt down? <laughs> the hatred, the hatred that's going to ensue. Anyway, what would that be called? Like, it, that wouldn't be icing then, because that that I don't know if you if you if you heard of that term icing, where people intentionally park their internal combustion engine vehicles at Tesla charging stations. Oh. What, what sounds like a very American thing to do? Very, very. Uh, I guess we'll let me that... park my F three fifty in this Tesla charging spot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get away from the tech news here. Let's move on to more consistently fun segment of the show. Ask a mechanic. Derailers, bearings, disc brakes, and rim brakes, sealants and chain loops. All right. As always, all of these questions come from our Velo Club members. Our first question comes from Daniel Rosbach. Uh, how bad is it actually to ride your nice bike in wet and dirty conditions in terms of wear and tear, provided you give it a wash right after? Totally fine. What about in terms of your drivetrain? I think it's probably... I mean, the, yeah, things biggest- wear, but like, if you want your bike to be pristine, hang it on the wall and don't ride it. Like, if you ride it outside and then you wash it after, like, that's... Like your drivetrain is going to wear whether you ride it in the rain or in the dry or whatever. I would people ride people ride in the rain all the time. I I think a bike is supposed to be a tool for use, and you should feel free to use in all conditions. But you do need to expect a higher rate of wear if you're using it in the wet versus the dry. Yeah, especially if it's gritty. But like if you're yeah. washing it too, that's 
you're already like up ahead of basically every cyclist that trains in a winter climate. Like Maybe. most people ride their bike all winter and wash it. It, it also depends March. how you wash it, right? Because there is a chance that you're washing it, but you're actually putting water or degreaser into places where it doesn't want to be and therefore you're further accelerating wear. So I think either way, like if you're riding in the wet, just Im- expect to increase your service frequency. Zach, let me ask you this. Have you run into any or have you had any customers come in where they seemed to be washing their bikes too much? I have never once had that happen. Because I remember when when I was a shop mechanic, I would always run into situations where someone would come in with a bike that was pretty rusty in places that I wouldn't have expected necessarily. And uh, I would ask them questions. I would ask them in particular if they if they consistently rode their bike in wet conditions. And oftentimes the answer was no. Uh, but then I would ask them if they washed their bike all the time. And, and then they'd be like, oh yeah, pretty much after every ride, like very proudly. Um, but then as a result of introducing all that water and occasionally using a pressure washer, their bike was actually accelerating the the wear on their bike was actually accelerating as opposed to if they had not cleaned it yep and i think this is like you watch zach you're you're included in this you watch professional mechanics race mechanics uh which is what that's the kind of mechanic that is seen most in in media and in videos and instructions and stuff because they're generally the most accessible most public facing uh and they're always washing bikes with with water pressure and getting bikes clean pretty quickly and that's often what people then do at home. The difference is, is that those mechanics, uh, when what you don't see is they're often stripping down the bikes or they're just not expecting the bikes to last that long. They have you know, a deep, deep pool of components to call on to, to get replacements for. So to, to be fair to Zach, I have seen Zach wash a lot of bikes and he does not use a pressure washer, on, on, at least not in race situations. No, in a cross race, for sure. Blast it. But... Day-to-day use, no, just a regular low-pressure garden hose does the job. Hmm. All right, so I guess the answer to this question is, as long, Daniel, as long as you're washing your bike afterward properly, and I guess also drying it properly, uh, then you should be okay. Yeah, I will, I will say there are other things you can do to mitigate that wear in the wet, like using a chain lube that doesn't wash off as easily, um, and that also happens to stay relatively clean and not get gritty is one and potentially like, you know, going as far as like repacking your bearings with a a more waterproof grease for the winter is, is another option. Yeah. I mean, I'd say too, it kind of depends. I don't know where this guy lives, but like if you live in England where it rains all the time, most people Mm -hmm. have a winter bike to just beat up and ride into the ground. But if you live somewhere where it's sunny basically every day and then it rains once every four weeks, then maybe just don't ride that day if you're concerned. The Zach and Kaylee method of, uh, mm. keeping your bicycle clean, which yeah. is don't ride when it's not nice outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the Dave method. But um, yeah. And I've read about these things called fenders. So maybe look into those. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It depends where he lives. But at the end of the day, like Dave said, the bicycle is a tool. It is meant to be ridden. So Daniel riding it in the rain is not going to kill it. Daniel, have at it. I guess that is our official, official blessing. Moving on to the next question. This one comes from Sorab Kulkami. Uh, what do I do if I rebuild my Shimano Ultegra pedals and the rubber seal that's supposed to sit mid-spindle ends up being pushed out by grease as I screw the spindle in? I totally took apart the spindle and bearings to replace the seal, but it just popped out again. Uh, I've had this happen before. Uh, I think probably most of us have. Um, essentially what you do with these, a lot of these Shimano cartridge-style pedal spindles, you kind of unscrew the whole axle assembly and basically just like pump a bunch of grease into the pedal body and then screw the whole thing back in. And as you do that, that new grease sort of just pushes all the old grease and whatever grit and stuff might be in there back out. Um, And sometimes that seal does pop out as you do that. But generally speaking, as you ride the pedal and some of the excess grease works its way out, um, you know, usually I I just kind of push that seal back in, kind of like nudge it in gently with a flathead screwdriver or something like that. Um, But as that excess grease works its way out, then that shouldn't happen anymore. At least that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, if you're loading the pedal body up with grease like and it's too much grease that grease has to go somewhere and the only way out is where the seal is so if it's too much it's going to push it out so i would try less grease yeah uh the one exception x there was uh, a series of xtr pedals that i guess have a, a known a relatively well known to have this issue where the seal doesn't stay in place very well um there's not a lot you can do with those uh, i think shimano has done a running change on them 
but uh, but yeah, every other pedal model should be solvable by using less grease. Okay, pretty straightforward. Uh, we have another one here from Storub. Uh, does anyone know why rear rim brake cables that run inside the top tube use full-length housing? He said, uh, I get that it has better sealing, but besides that, would there be any downside to making my own cable stops at the entry and exit points? I think there would very much be a downside to that because one of the reasons why you see full-length brake housing is because when you're hard, particularly when you're hard on the brakes, there's a lot of compressive force that is in that housing. It's one of the reasons why brake housing does not use longitudinal strands like shifter housing. Um, shifter housing, if you if you were to use that for a mechanical rim brake, um, there is very much the possibility of that housing just completely splintering and blowing apart as you pull the as you pull the, the brake lever. I've done that. Um, done so, that before. Yeah. Mm, of course, you have. So and it's been a while. As, in my defense, I was in college. <laughs> but <laughs> so if you if you were to run a brake cable through a top tube, and a top tube is typically uh, quite thin, it's definitely one, usually one of the thinner tubes on a bike. Um, if you were to run that uh, entry and exit point at places that are pretty thin, like the, like say like you know not at, directly at the head tube or not directly at the seat cluster, um, and you were to pull that cable pretty hard, you, you actually could potentially just break the tube. That is why you wouldn't do it. Yeah, there, there certainly are frames on the market that have segmented housing for the rear brake. I mean, that it is it was very common, like for for quite a number of years. Uh, but those those frames are purposefully reinforced in those areas. They have a lot of thick material at the housing stops, and then you'd imagine that the top tube itself is also reinforced for that compression. So, uh, yeah, I mean the the frame that you have now, if it's running full length housing, it just wasn't intended to be used any other way. So if you do want to improve the performance of that rear brake and make it a little less squishy, one thing you could do uh, is just switch up the housing. So instead of using conventional uh, wound brake housing, you could use something like Yokozuna Reaction. Um, that would actually quite that, that would actually probably feel quite different, um, although that housing is also really, really stiff. So you may actually have to pair that with short sections of conventional housing um, at areas where where the cable action or at places where the housing needs to bend on bend a little bit more like you know at the lever or at the caliper something like that but um but if your bike is anyway in short if your bike is not set up for hard housing stops at the entry points and exit points on the top tube don't add them or if you do send us pictures later because it's not going to go well <laughs> it may not go well anyway all right moving on this question comes from tom jabaroski how important is it to really use the same brand of mineral oil for hydraulic brakes? Uh, for example, Shimano for Shimano, Tektro for Tektro, Megura for Megura, Megura et cetera. Uh, this is an interesting question. Zach, what are your thoughts on this? I Seems mean, fine. I would, <laughs> I would always use the recommended brake fluid. Like it seems like a really easy thing to, to do and avoid not using the, the wrong stuff. So like each brake system is designed for their particular oil so the seals don't break down and degrade over time and go bad or anything. So I would just always use the recommended recommended brand. That's certainly the safest way to go. Um, someone did comment, and Dave, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but someone did comment that um, they've noticed that uh, some World Cup downhill mechanics occasionally will mix uh, apparently Shimano fluid and Magura fluid, or, or they'll alternate between the two with bleeds so that they can see when all the old fluid is purged from the system with with a fresh bleed, so Shimano fluid is red and Magura fluid is blue. Yep, um, I know so shops I guess that you do have that as that. well. Yeah, um, I know of bike shops that do that, so they can tell whether they were the last ones that worked on the bike. Uh, I, I chimed in on this on the Slack channel, but basically, it's it's a liability thing, which is why you'll never find a bike brand suggest another brake fluid because they don't have control of those other brake fluids. They can only control what they sell and therefore for liability reasons, that's all they can recommend because it's it's a braking product. It's a safety product we're talking about. So that's that's why Shimano says only stick with Shimano and Magura says only stick with Magura. There are other differences. The, the, the oils will also vary slightly in viscosity. So you might actually change the intended brake feel a little bit and you know potentially the system doesn't have the right amount of seal flex or whatever to handle that different viscosity. So I agree with Zach. I personally always stick with the recommended fluid, um, but there are aftermarket fluids that will work fine and people use them without issue. Um, but you just will never find brake manufacturers will recommend them for, for that liability issue. 
Right. One thing I would always say, uh, well, one thing I will definitely recommend against is using uh, kind of like baby oil, mineral oil that you'll find in like a drugstore or stuff like that. Um, if for no other reason than the fact then typically that stuff is very, very thick. It's way, way higher viscosity than what you typically find in a brake fluid. Yep. And I also wouldn't recommend the old trials trick of using water because you will boil that if you're using a bike for more than trials, which doesn't build heat into the brakes. Um, trials riders used to do it because it gave a stiffer, like a firmer lever feel with less compression. Um, and obviously you could do it with a water bottle. Um, but yeah, don't don't put water in your brakes. Okay, there you go. Uh, next question comes from Ali Basley. Um, how often should you need to tweak Shimano 105 or Shimano GRX mechanical gearing under normal use? Uh, I find myself needing derailleur adjustments almost monthly at a monthly mileage of about 800 miles. Uh, he said the number of times the shifting needs help is a big factor pushing me toward electronic DI2 or Axis. Hmm. To me, I feel like if you are constantly tweaking your mechanical gearing, that tells me something else is going on. Um, like to me, I wonder, like, so one issue one issue with mechanical drivetrains in general is just by virtue of the fact that you're essentially translating a signal or command at the lever all the way back to the derailleur via a braided steel cable and you know, running, that through, running that through some housing depending on the cleanliness of that whole system and how well that whole thing is set up, you can sometimes get some signal degradation essentially, which is why that's one of the main benefits of an electronic drivetrain. Um, but if you're having to tweak it all the time, that tells me that either that system is pretty open and not sealed very well. So you're dealing with some contamination issue. Um, I mean, that's been sort of the big one for me because newer drivetrains especially are quite susceptible or quite sensitive to contamination. Um, so if your cable and housing are not clean, then you certainly could be futzing around with that quite a bit. I would also say if it's a stock bike from whatever company, usually they use pretty cheap cable and housing. So if you have cheap, like OEM housing that is just kind of degrading over time and just slowly compressing and making it so every time, every month you have to add some tension, then I would start with higher quality shift housing and cables. Yeah, and a lot of times it's even just the housing caps that can be really bad. I mean, exactly, that, yeah, the little plastic ones with yeah, the seals. Like how, just, how many times have we pulled a bike apart and seen the little longitudinal strands and shift housing like blowing through housing ends, that sort of thing? Uh, and that can absolutely have an effect on your shift performance, uh, especially kind of like the slow degradation that you're noticing. Yeah, and there are, as James sort of alluded to, there were, and there still are, quite a few frames that aren't as optimal as others as far as cable routing paths. So... That could be a thing as well. Like there are some frames that are so horribly done that in some cases that the fix is to run full length housing and, you know, figure out a way to run that full length housing. Sometimes it's it's making a hole larger to make it work or, or running it down the outside of the frame. Um, that's That stuff does exist. It's more from the 2000s. That I'd say that that was more of a thing, but there are some frames that just will always be pretty poor with mechanical um, and then as a last point, I'd say check your hanger alignment because that might just be making things more sensitive than it needs to be. If your hanger alignment's out, then you probably have a, a far smaller gap in terms of um, yeah how much tolerance the system has in cable tension before your shifting goes bad. All right, so Ollie, there you go. I would first take a look at your cable and housing because with mechanical stuff, that, that basically makes or breaks shifting performance almost all the time. Um, Ooh, Dave, this is a question for you here. This one comes from Ted Hawk. Tool Geeks, any special tweezers I should have in the box? Uh, he just exploded a Chris King hub bearing due to being unaware of needing a new split ring for the service tool. Realized a good set of tweezers may have been useful for putting it back together. Zach, I don't know about you. Do you use tweezers? Mm, i trying to think. I think I have a set here, but no. Yeah, so I, I have quite a few sets. Um... <laughs> That explains the eyebrows. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for noticing, Kelly. Um, I, I have quite a few sets of Knipex uh, tweezers, which are pretty high-end, very high quality. Um, and I thought they'd be quite useful, but to be honest, I don't really ever find much use for them on bikes. Like I've got, I've even got things like bearing tweezers, which are designed to hold ball bearings that let you drop them in. But again, I still find it easier to use fingers um so best tweezers 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do use like gripping pliers quite a bit with like really thin nosed needle nose gripping pliers, which actually have some sort of leverage on them and you can actually hold things. But tweezers for me, I've always found to be uh, lacking in that leverage or lacking in that grip strength. And I, I, I kind of everywhere I can fit them, I, I kind of just find the grip lackluster and I don't bother. So, wow. The, um, the, yeah. The rare word from Dave where he almost does not recommend someone buy a particular tool. This should be marked in the calendar. Yeah. I think, I think we, I think we just found our podcast title for this episode. Yeah. I think there is the exception is, is like there are some people out there like rebuilding Shimano shifters, for example, <laughs> with tiny springs. Uh, personally, why, I would, why, why, I would why? rather go poke my eyes out with something, but, um, <laughs> with those tweezers, yeah. with said tweezers, but like, I think like some watchmaker tweezers would be helpful at that point. But yeah, I mean, there's not too many things on a bicycle that, that are so delicate and so fine that tweezers are going to save you time. And yeah, I think a good set of picks and, and some good needle nose pliers is going to take the, take the task. I have to say, even when doing some suspension work where you have, a lot of uh, like indexed clickers and that sort of thing where you have these tiny, tiny little coil springs and tiny ball bearings. Even then, I haven't felt the need for, for tweezers. No, like a, a nice straight pick that you can kind of put the spring on and then drop it in mm-hmm. place from that, mm-hmm. I, I find is yep. is a better tool than a pair of tweezers. So Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. All right. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Next question comes from James Wynn, who I believe has sent questions before. Um, Despite applying tons of anti-seize when installing my titanium seat post into my titanium frame, uh uh-oh, you can see where this is going, (laughs) lo and behold, it's seized up. Any tips or tricks for getting it unstuck? Lots of effort. I've dealt with this before. It's not fun. No. Oh, I can only wonder. I, I should have followed up with James and found out how much seat post he thinks is in that frame because there could be a lot of surface area bonding right there. Uh, Zach, what are your what are your favorite solvents for Ugh. like trying to trying to break up whatever chemical corrosion is going on in there? I mean, I feel like a lot of people on the internet always say to use Coca Cola. I've never actually tried that because it seems like it would be very messy, and I've never. I think had, they've used diet to. coke though, because so you don't have the, the sugar and stickiness though. Yeah, I mean, I just usually use a thin oil that hopefully kind of penetrates down in there. Um, if it's really stuck, it's going to just, it's going to take some time and effort. Lots of chemicals. Like, yeah, from top and from the bottom, from the bottom bracket area to try and get it up there and just, yeah, be patient. That's, yeah. How likely do you think it'll be that th- that James will have to destroy the seed post in the process? Usually pretty high, for sure. Mm, that's disappointing. Um. I, I'm struggling to I'm struggling to remember his name. I'm so sorry for this, but there's a mechanic in the UK who's custom made a tool for for this purpose. Sterling Bike Works, I believe it is. That is exactly who it is. Yes, uh, and it is a very cool tool. But it's it's basically uh, he's modified a headset press to work as a puller with this big frame that mounts the bottom bracket, and then a collar that goes around the seat post. And you wind the headset press, and it pulls the seat post out. It's so satisfying to watch. It's his Instagram page, like filled with this because he's become like the go-to guy for like a you know a, a few hour radius around him of bike shops every time someone gets a sepo stuck which happens a lot in the uk they're like oh this is your guy off you go um <laughs> and he's like just refuses to be defeated by any any sepos he's got like a, a custom hacksaw to cut sepos out and it's it's very it's i i take a lot of joy in seeing his his account <laughs> It um, is very, very satisfying. Yeah. The James, is, this, you... is this on like Instagram or something? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it sure yeah. is. All right. I gotta how do how do we still Sterling? I'm 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 struggling to. I want to say Sterling Bike Doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just found it. S T I R. S T I R L I N G. Yeah. Bike Doctor. Yep. And yeah, his Instagram page well worth a follow. Um, quite the quite the mad genius. I don't. I'm surprised that one of the bigger tool companies hasn't reproduced that tool and commercialized it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you'd have to be a big tool company because it's a, it's massive. It's a big tool. Yeah, yeah, it's like the size of a workstand almost. It's it's huge, um, but so satisfying. Like ah, I like like even if I had a C post that wasn't stuck, I'd always want to use it just so I can use it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. The 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 poor man's version that I've also seen is someone's basically got uh, tubular steel rods and welded them to a pipe, and they just clamp that into the the saddle clamp. In, in replace of a saddle and then you've got like this long pipe to lever off as opposed to trying to twist the saddle um, right which unfortunately the, with titanium seat posts in particular it might damage that often you, that well that often use bonded heads into the into the into the the shaft 
a lot of times what you end up doing with all that leverage is just breaking the, the, the head off of the shaft. Less than ideal. Less than ideal. Uh, all right. Well, James, unfortunately, that is, I wish we had an easier solution for you, but it's not great. All right. Last question before we wrap things up. This one comes from John Chenier. Uh, John has a Shimano BBR60 bottom bracket, and uh, his, his local bike shop has told him that it, they're essentially non-serviceable. Uh, when they're done, they're done, supposedly. He said, that strikes me as a bit wasteful. So his question is, he's got a low-ish and specialized Diverge that he generally uses just as a road bike, six to 7,000 miles per year, five days a week, uh, maybe about 30% indoors, and only occasionally in the rain. Um, but he said he does not shy away from wet roads living in the Pacific Northwest. Should he consider switching to a serviceable bottom bracket to cut down on waste? If so, which one? And is he overthinking this? John, your local bike shop is... Well, is there any incorrect way to, or is there any less than, or is there any gentler way to say this than their, their local bike shops are wrong? I mean, I would say that basically every Shimano and Strand bottom bracket on the market is designed to be disposable. That's what, they, they are meant to be disposable, but they, but they also use fairly conventional cartridge bearings that can be replaced. I just, they, they, they can be replaced and you can do so. I just, I wouldn't because the, the cup is quite low quality. Yeah, and the price point of the, one of those bottom brackets is not very expensive. So the amount of labor and bearings that you're paying a bike shop to do that is they could just buy a new bottom bracket and throw that in there. It's kind of what the point is. I mean, you could buy an Enduro or Wheels Manufacturing or a Ceramic Speed or something that has an actual bearing in it that you can easily service, and that would be better long-term. But like a stock Shimano bottom bracket, unless you're power washing it all the time, will last a long time and They're spin pretty durable. quite well. Yeah. They're pretty well sealed usually. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the most wasteful thing you can do is replace a perfectly functional bottom bracket for the fear of it wearing out. If it were already worn out and it needed replacing, then that's that's a different story. And at that point, I think if you're consistently riding in the rain and you expect to hold on to this bike and this bottom bracket for years, then there probably is value in buying something like a an Enduro or a Chris King uh, Chris King bottom bracket that's, that's high quality and that can be serviced um, or can be serviced far more easily. Um, Otherwise, yeah, I mean, those Shimano bottom brackets are a pretty low cost and the way they'd be mass produced would make them pretty energy efficient to, to make and they're very durable. Um, one other recommendation that I would make, um, John, seeing as how you are in the Pacific Northwest, my, my guess is that maybe you are already running fenders, although on a specialized Diverge, uh, I guess depending on which one you have, they may not have proper mounts for it. Um, but I would, I would really strongly recommend getting as full a coverage fender as you can in that bike if you're going to ride in the wet. Um, and in particular, running pretty long fender flaps to keep as much of the spray off of your bike and off of you as you can. Um, because in addition to keeping you and your riding buddies dry, it also saves a lot of wear and tear on your bike. Because for one, it keeps water from getting shot up into the back of your seat tube and down into your frame. It also saves a lot of that uh, water and kind of road grime and stuff from getting shot up into your drivetrain and your bottom bracket. Um, so if you're not running fenders on that bike, then that, that's always a good recommendation to do too. Um, but I would certainly echo Dave's recommendation that, um, not to replace that bottom bracket just because you are afraid it's going to wear out, just run it until it's dead and then decide what to do from there. This is not related to John's question, or this is not part of John's question, but, um, one thing that I always think of when these sorts of questions come up as far as bearing durability and, and maintenance, that sort of thing goes, why isn't WTB grease guard still a thing? Like, I, I mean, I don't know if any of you had, well, this is yet another sign of me showing my age, um, but I, I don't know why that stopped being a thing because you had these hubs and bottom brackets and stuff and headsets where you just had these grease ports and uh, like a special set of seals, uh, like basically like one-way one -way seals that were in there. And you just stuck a, the nozzle of a grease gun up against the, uh, up against the, the Zerk fitting and injected in a bunch of fresh grease, all the old grease and all the grit and stuff would come out and your bearing overhaul was done in like 10 seconds. And then it stopped being a thing and because I guess not enough people bought them and they just they just went away. I don't know why. It's still a thing on some mountain bike frame pivots. Very few though. Mm. The concept is still there on some frame pivots, yes. Yeah. Um, but as far as things like, um, well, I mean, I guess Chris King does have a tool that you can use on their bottom brackets. Um, so they, they have a tool where, whereby you are still able to do, to do that sort of thing, but it's not uh, like as common or I guess not as, not as heavily marketed a feature as it used to be. And it kind of makes me a little sad. I think, I think it's similar to like the, the pedals that we spoke about before, where there is a chance that you can pop seals out and, or in most cases, people just ignore that, the, that features there and the, they've, you know, 
they've paid extra money for this feature that's never used and then the product fails anyway. James, you also get upset about this all the time, so it shouldn't be surprising. But like bike stuff is not really designed <laughs> to, last. The, to last and for the end user like servicing. <sighs> like it's meant to be old grumpy hater. Like it's just disposable and it's once it's sold, it's gone and then they're on to the next thing. Like you complain about this okay, all the time. Okay, point point made. Yes. I, you, I, <laughs> yes, you're correct. I am constantly complaining about how stuff is not fixable and not meant to be durable and not meant to last. And that is modern society, unfortunately. Or I guess mo- mar- modern consumerism. Yes. All right. Well, on that happy note, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening as always. Thanks for listening to us old grumpy haters, or I guess one old grumpy hater and three young grumpy haters. Um, <laughs> not thanks that old for li- yet. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to Nerd Alert as always. If you have not already subscribed to Nerd Alert, please do so. Please always also tell your fellow nerd buddies about Nerd Alert because we always like spreading our nerdism uh, across a wider audience. Uh, if you have not done so, please leave us a ideally a five-star rating on Apple iTunes if that's what you use for your uh, podcast subscriptions. And please leave a comment too, because that also helps more people find Nerd Alert. You may or may not have noticed that we do not run ads on Nerd Alert, and that is by choice. It's not because companies aren't trying to get in here, uh, but we prefer to run the show ad-free, and we, we're able to do that because we ha- have a lot of listeners. So the more the merrier. The, uh, you can leave us the meanest comment you want. You just have to give us five stars in the review. <laughs> we don't care oh, how mean the comment is. You I just do. have to give us five stars. <laughs> Be as mean as you wish. That could open up a whole wealth of creativity here. I, they tend to be mean to me anyway. And I have elephant skin, so it's fine. Be as mean as you want. Just give us five stars. Because it does. It helps people find it. Because it, it puts us in like the algorithm. And the algorithm does its magic. And then more people find the, the podcast. And that makes us happy. I, uh, I have the skin <laughs> of, of an albino child. So be kind to me. <laughs> <laughs> so be nice right, to well, Dave. I... I I'm going to go ahead and specifically ask people then to leave us five-star ratings with mean comments about Kaylee. No. Because that would be, <laughs> that'd be, that'd be so much fun to read. Come on. You just basically just saying just inviting you, people. If you have to, if you just can't like- <laughs> hold your hatred of me inside you anymore, then you can do that. But, you know, if you just are ambivalent about my presence on this podcast, you, you don't need to tell me that. That's I feel funny. like everyone should just leave a comment similar to Kaylee's internet argument and just leave fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, whatever you leave, we would love to see a flood of five-star comments with whatever creative caption or, or, or a little comment you would like to leave there with us. So entertain us. We're looking forward to it. Anyway, thanks as always for listening. We will see you next Wednesday. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye.